right, so you're in, in Romans chapter 3. Let me take you back to where we were last week. I always like to do that so you can understand the flow of that. Paul had very faithfully and successfully brought all of us under the wrath and judgment of God because we are all sinners. And when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, you have these questions that arise, these challenges. And I'm convinced they're challenges that the Apostle Paul faced every time he went into a Jewish synagogue. And so the Jews never believed that there was no way that they would be judged by God, that they would be considered as sinners. And so the first part of chapter 3, Paul is always dealing with these questions and these challenges of the gospel. And he faithfully refutes all of those. And then he comes back to where we are this morning, beginning in verse 10. And since he has everyone answered and all the challenges faced, then he brings everyone back up under the reality of these verses that we have here before us. And if you listen this morning while I was reading, you began to realize this is a very humbling place that we find ourselves in because there's never been a one of us to ever meet the requirements of God or find the favor of God. And I did think about this. We've been here several weeks and I really do appreciate you guys willingness to allow me to take the word of God and show you who you are at the depth of your souls. It is not a pleasant picture. It is not a pretty picture. And this morning we do have one last plunge into the depth of who we are. But again, right at the end, I'll bring us up to the top of the water to draw a breath of hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord willing, the next time we're in the book of Romans, and, and of course that will be next week, I trust, we'll be on top of the water. We won't have to, be, we won't have to worry about going so deep in all of this and wrestling with the weight of our own depravity. But uh, to be uh, the last few weeks... The image that's been going through my mind is a picture that we have in the Bible. It's a true picture, but the imagery of how Jonah describes his situation after he's swallowed by the fish really, to me, fits in Romans chapter 3. And let me read to you his words. Again, he's been swallowed. The fish is descending down to the depths of the ocean. And this is what Jonah writes. He says, For you had cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. Your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Listen, weeds were wrapped around my head as I descended to the roots of the mountains. He says, the earth and its bars was around me forever. And then he says this, but you have brought my life up from the pit. And then before he spit out, he confesses this, salvation is from the Lord. And so whether you've been coming on Wednesday night, we've been wrestling with our own depravity, or whether you've been here the last several Sundays and we've been walking through our own depravity, I hope you've come to the place that you understand that salvation is solely of God. We have nothing to offer we have no good works. We have nothing to bring him to curry his favor or gain his pleasure. It's just simply by grace and grace alone. Certainly that was what Jonah confessed, and I hope that we're willing to confess that too. Now, if you're looking at, at verse 10, you'll notice if your Bible kind of pulls out the quotes and 
puts them in all capital letters. There's a great number of quotations here from the Old Testament. Paul is quoting a very, a, a certain, several different places within the Psalms, but it's not just the psalmist that he's quoting. He also quotes from the book of Isaiah. They're not randomly, uh, random picked passages that's just coming to mind that, that Paul is just kind of reeling off. He's very careful here to construct a clear picture of what's going on in all of our hearts and in, in the depths of our souls. And you probably noticed, I hope you noticed, a repeated phrase. In the Greek, it's ou-ami. Ou is a negative particle. We always translate it not, none, or no. Same word, but depending on the context, we always translate it with one of those three words, usually no. And then the second word is just a present tense verb, ami, uh, or esteen actually here. It's always translated is, but being in English, we need the there, so it's always there is. But what's interesting in the Greek is the negative particle comes first. It's the emphatic position. He wants you to understand no, 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 no. And he does it six times. Because again, he's trying to paint a picture of our lostness. So look in verse 10, if you will. There's one of these. There is none. Verse 11, he has two. There is none. There is none. At the end of verse 12, again, there is none, there is not. But it's the same construction in the Greek. And then look down in verse 18. There is no. Again, all the same words, but he uses the exact same phrase six times to help us understand. We've all been left out of the favor of God. To try to give, help you to, to better understand this, if we were able to sit down with God and ask him some questions at the conclusion of all time. And we wanted to ask him some questions about humanity. And we rephrased it this way. Well, Lord, tell me, was there ever any who were righteous? To which he would respond, no, not even one. Well, tell me, Lord, did any ever understand you? And he would say, no. Well, Lord, did any, you know, truly seek after you? No. Lord, are you telling me that no single solitary man ever born by a man and a woman, there was never who did any good? And his response would be, no. Well, tell me, Lord, did any fear you? Surely there was a man born who truly feared the Lord. To which God would respond, no, there never was. There never was a single man ever born who truly feared God. Second thought that came to mind is, I thought, goodness, Paul, could you ever say anything positive? To which Paul would respond, well, not if you want me to be honest. If I tell you the bare truth, this is the bare truth of the reality. There's none who have ever met the requirements of God. There is never any who has earned the favor of God. There is none who is accepted by God based on their own merit. And I bring up the word merit because Paige and I got to talk to Tyler and Wallace via FaceTime this week from Thailand. And, and Tyler brought up the issue, you know, they're 99.9% .9 Buddhists over there. And the whole religion is based upon making merit. 
And he said, so they're constantly doing good for you or to you or, or to their environment or, or to nature or to their, their polytheistic, to all their gods. They're constantly doing good because they tell you they're trying to make merit in order to be accepted by God. That's the business of the day. In fact, Tyler says kind of the liberal side of Buddhism has created a Disney world, so to speak. And there's all sorts of animals there and different aspects of nature. And they go there to make merit to all the different animals and all the different gods and all the different scenes. It's just like a Disney world of making merit. And that's the truth of all religions save ours that is by faith and faith alone. They're all trying to make merit or make good works because it makes perfect sense if we can do good enough on the cosmic scale that outweighs the bad, surely God would consider us good and receive us. But God is very clear in the text. He says, there has never been a man born who has done good in respect to me. In fact, there's a little bit of a bookend here. If you'll notice verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. And then if you look at the end of verse 12, there is none who does good, not even one. In, in Greek, it's literally one word difference. There's never been good, not even one. Now I can say that, you could say amen to that within your hearts, but we still haven't grasped that because you and I live by categories. We have categories of people that we agree with and accept on various issues, political, social, whatever issues. And we put those people that agree with us in a particular category and consider them to be pretty good people. And all those people that disagree with us politically, socially or environmentally or what have you, if they disagree with us, they're not in that category. They're in a different category and we don't consider them so very good, really some of them are just offensive to us. God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't operate by categories, but we do. So let me put some of this in the framework of a category to help you understand there is no one who has done good or is righteous before God. There has never been born in all of the history of man a liberal who has pleased the Father. We all agree with that. But you do realize there has never been born throughout the entire history of man a conservative who has ever pleased God. There has never been a homosexual to gain the favor of God. And there has never been a heterosexual to gain the favor of God. There has never been a single person who supports abortion's rights to gain the pleasure of God. Nor has there ever been a person who hates abortion that has gained the favor of God. There has never been a single man, woman, nor child. There's never been a single black man that God was pleased with. And there's never been a single white man that God is pleased with. There's never been a single slave owner that God found favor with. And there has never been a single slave that God has found favor with. There's never been a single person who is guilty of a great crime such as murder that God has been pleased with. And there's never been a single person who has given the entirety of their life for the well-being of others that God was pleased with. Do you get the picture? 
Do you see how you and I operate by categories and we consider some people to be good and other people to be bad? And you need to realize God says there's never been a single solitary one of you who I've been pleased with or extended my favor to based on you or what you have done. You've never once been able to gain merit or accomplish a good work. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners, again, unable to secure the favor of God in any form or fashion. That's what stands written. And so we have to come to terms with that. You know, and I, just to pull away from my thoughts here for just a second, if we could come to terms with that, we would treat one another very differently. In fact, we might even begin to understand love if we began to understand that we're all without Christ under the judgment of God and the wrath of God. We would begin to have compassion toward people rather than hatred. But not just that, there's more here. Paul then says there is none who understands, simply don't understand. Now, we need to clarify that because you and I do understand the English language and we all kind of speak it pretty good. We do understand the words. Most of the time we understand the meanings of those words. And the majority of the time we're able to follow the logic of the argument. And so if you're speaking to a man who is apart from Christ, these are not the things he doesn't understand. He understands language. He understands words. He understands logic. But this is what he does not understand. And that is the truth of the gospel is so foreign to his soul and offensive to his proud nature that he cannot comprehend the glory of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a natural man, and what he means by a natural man is a lost man, a man that is undone, a man that is unsaved. And he says a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand him. It's just foolishness. I hear what you're saying, but it's just absolutely foolish just to me. I cannot comprehend the truth of it. It never connects to my soul. I hear it with my ears. I understand it with my mind, but I don't understand it in the depth of my soul. It's just silly and it's foolish. And they consider us to be ignorant because we believe in the gospel. So if you want to parse this out a little bit, man... In his sinful state, the natural man cannot understand his own sinfulness. He really thinks that he's pretty good. He just does some things sometimes that are questionable or suspect. But overall, he's pretty good. So he cannot comprehend the depth of his depravity. In fact, I've already used a word that offends some. Some don't like the word total depravity. That messes with their theology, so they just want to use the word depravity. But I'll show you in the text this morning, it's not just depravity, it is total depravity that's affected the total man. Not only do they comprehend their own sinfulness, they don't comprehend God's holiness. They have no understanding of how white, hot, glorious our God is. How that He is nothing like us whatsoever. He is perfect in every way. And you and I only begin to understand that concept after our conversion. Only you and I can begin to comprehend why the angels would say, holy, 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 throughout all eternity, speaking about the glory of God. But to a lost man, 
He has no foundation for that understanding whatsoever. It's just foolishness to him. They're incapable of understanding that they cannot earn the favor of God. That makes no sense to them because you and I spend our lives gaining the favor of people that we want the favor of. We do that all the time. We want the favor of important people. We want the favor of people in position. We want the favor of people that we look at and we go, yeah, they're kind of like me. I'd like to be their friend. So we go about the business of gaining their favor. They cannot comprehend that you cannot gain the favor of God because that's how they operate. They cannot grasp the fact that God became a man and saved them by giving his life in exchange for them. All of God's good gospel is above and beyond their ability to perceive its utter foolishness. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In fact, Paul will even give a better picture of this in Ephesians 4 when Paul is instructing the church when he says, I want you to stop acting like the lost or the Gentiles. And then he describes them. He says the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding. And the futility, you know what that word means? It means useless. It says, Paul says, I want you to stop acting like the lost because you know your mind, their mind is absolutely useless. So don't act like that. They have completely a darkened understanding. There's no light in there. So stop acting like you're lost because you're representing someone who's absolutely mindless. Right? So why is this? Why has man been left with a mind that cannot rightly perceive God nor His gospel? And we've already explained that, but I want to go back there one more time. Go back to Romans chapter 1 and, and look with me at verse 21. I made this statement a few weeks ago as we walked through these passages that the reason that we have so much homosexuality in the world today is because there's so much idolatry in the world today. And I told you that the reason that there is so much homosexuality that's being welcomed in the church today is because there's so much idolatry that's been accepted in the church today. But do you realize that ignorance was in that equation as well? blindness, stupidity, if you will. Watch this take shape. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But notice, they became futile or useless in their thoughts or speculation, some translations. Their foolish heart was darkened and then professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man of birds or four-footed animals and on and on and it goes. And this is not a line of succession. It's not since A has happened, then B, and since B has happened, it's C. All of this is grouped together in one picture because you have refused the God that you know is true in your own heart. You've become absolutely useless in your thoughts and speculations. You're darkened in your understanding. And all of that is tied to the truth of idolatry, professing to be wise. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. So why is ignorance rampant? Why is stupidity 
rampant in the world today. Why do people do things and we go, why in the world? It's because idolatry is rampant in the world today. We've created a God after our own image. And we've forgotten Psalms 50, where the Lord says this, you thought I was like you. Listen, God is not like us in any way, shape, or form. He is above us and beyond us. He does not think like us. He does not reason like us. He is God. And we've taken God and we've turned Him into a man like us. And we try to make Him think like us, act like us, reason like us, love the things that we love, have lusts and passions and desires toward the things that we do. And God's like, no, you're wrong. I'm not like you in any way. I'm God. Now, here's the result of this idolatry. I had you to turn to Psalm 115, so run, run there with me real quick, and I want to show you something. And this is just the truth of God's Word. It's a principle that takes place. Psalm 115, and I'll start in verse 4. Psalms 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. Now watch this. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. Listen, they cannot make a sound with their throat. Now let me ask you before we go on. Who has hands and mouths and eyes and ears and noses and feet and speaks? Who, who does that? We do. So who do we create our God after? This image. Because we want God to look just like us. And that last verse is very interesting. You can't pass wind or move air over your voice box to come out with a grunt. That idol you made, he can't even go, uh. He can't even grunt. But notice the next verse, verse 8, what the Lord says, Those who make them will be like them. And because we've become such an idolatrous people, we've become just like the idols that we've made. And those idols are ignorant and stupid, to be frank with you. And so that's exactly what our world is becoming, just like the idol we made. We have so carefully constructed a lie that we can no longer comprehend the truth of God. And this is what I find absolutely amazing in spite of all this, God has decreed that we shall come to saving faith by hearing the gospel and receiving it and trusting in its truths. How is that even possible? In fact, I don't think you can be faithful in sharing the gospel until you understand this truth, that you're preaching to the dead. Listen to this. How can the blind man be made to see the glories of Christ in the gospel? How can the deaf be made to hear the tender call of God? How can those who cannot smell be made to recognize the sweet aroma of everlasting life? 
How can those without hands who grope about in darkness be made to feel the shackles fall away from their souls and their bars of sin be burst wide open for their escape? How can the lame be made to run to Christ? And how can those who cannot make a sound in their throat be made to call out to the Lord in saving faith? How? I think you know the answer to that. Because we met someone in the gospel who made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and the lame to run. And I present all this for you to help you understand that you owe more to Christ than you realize. Everything that we have, we have because of Christ. You could not even comprehend the glories of God in the gospel apart from the powerful work of Christ in your own blindness and deadness and deafness and lameness. But because of what He has done in His grace, we heard and we believed and the people of God give glory to the Son of God. Amen? But there's more than that. Look back now. Go back with me to the book of Romans chapter 3. As Paul keeps going along, he makes this statement in verse 11. There's none who understands. Then he says, there's none who seeks for God. Again, we come to the reality that there's none who seeks for God, but this one seems to run contrary to our own wisdom. If you've ever taken a philosophy class, I think they spend most of the class trying to disprove the reality of God, but then they turn right around and say, everyone seeks for God. And if you think about that from a worldly perspective, the whole world is seeking for a God. Everyone is religious. If they can't find a God, they make a God. If they can't make a God, they go out in the forest and they find a tree or they find an animal and they worship that animal as God. So you say, how can God say no one seeks for God, yet the whole world seems to be seeking after God? How do we understand what the Bible says here? And in fact, what the Bible says in Romans 1.19, where he says, I have written the reality of myself on every single heart. How can both of these realities be true? I'll give you two examples for that. The first one we just talked about, and that is idolatry. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And so we're all dead at the first turn, right? Again, we all go about this business of creating a God, and it's that God that we seek after. It's not the God of the Bible. I know we've taken this journey before. Let me grab my glasses. You keep a finger there and go back with me to the book of Exodus. I didn't think you needed to mark that. Genesis, Exodus. If you have subtitles, it, this won't be a useful journey. But if you do have subtitles in your Bible, this is one of those aha moments I think you'll understand in Scripture when God says there's none, absolutely none. Exodus chapter 14. You know the story? This is the story about the only people on the planet who knew God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... Jacob gives birth to this nation of peoples, okay? So out of everybody on the planet, there's only one group that knows the God who made the heavens and the earth, right? And by the time you get to Exodus 14, you see the pursuit of Pharaoh. Of course, you've been in Sunday school enough to know what happens next. But you also need to remember that God has already delivered them with ten powerful plagues. I mean, God has been working mightily among them. Every time He afflicted the Egyptians, He delivered the Israelites or the Hebrews, and they never felt any of those plagues. When you get to 14, 
You know, Pharaoh goes after them and they come to the Red Sea. God parts the sea. They walk through on dry ground. And then God kills all of their enemies in the flood. You turn the page to the end of chapter 15 over verse 22. And you have this subtitle. They're out in the middle of the desert and the Lord provides water. You look at chapter 16, the first part. The Lord provides manna, bread from heaven, no less. The middle of chapter 16 and verse 8, if you will, the Lord sends quail and feeds them all meat. Me and, Eldon were, me and Mr. Eldon were talking before service started. We love quail. Some of the best meat that you can eat. And the Lord's like, all right, I'll feed the whole lot of you. Just get up in the morning. I'll send the quail. They'll cover the camp. You just go out, pick up the birds by hand. And you roast them and you eat them. It's good meat. Turn to chapter 17. Water from a rock. How amazing could that have been? Turn to chapter 19. God himself comes down. Shakes the whole mountain. It's a terrifying sight. God visits his people in person and the whole mountain is consumed with smoke. Of course, you know how it follows from there. God gives them the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. But now I want you to run to chapter 32 real quick because all of the rest of that is the giving of the law. But I want to read to you the first four verses of Exodus chapter 32. And you'll understand very clearly why we are all idolaters. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this man Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him or what's become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool. He made it into a molten calf. And they all said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Listen, there was only one group of people on the planet who could get this right. There was only one group of people who God had made himself known to. And yet when they finally get themselves in the thick of the moment, they make their own God and want to go back home. And if they can't get it right, beloved, we are hopelessly lost because we can never get it right. We didn't have ten plagues. I've never had bread from heaven. I've never drank water from a rock. I've never been rescued from slavery. I've never stood before a mountain absolutely scared to death because the thing was on fire because you could hear God speaking from the top. They could. And yet they turned right around and made their own little G God because they didn't like what He was doing. They wanted a God who would do what they wanted Him to do. They wanted a God like themselves. And don't you ever think that you're any better than they were? Because we're all in the same boat, remember? We're all born in the same way and we're all fallen because of what Adam has done. We would have done what they had done or we would have done much worse. That's one of the reasons that no one seeks after God, because we just don't really like Him. We like the idea of God, but I want you to do what I want you to do. And therefore, I'm going to take you and I'm going to fashion you into the image of what I see in the mirror. 
Now let me give you a second reason. And Steve helped me understand this, why no one seeks after God. And you just simply have to say this, remember the garden? What did Adam do when he sinned against God? He hid himself. This is what the passage reads, Then they heard, Adam and Eve, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God, he called to the man and said, where are you? Do you know we've never gotten over that? Do you know we still do that? Steve says we've never advanced beyond the garden. And he's right. What do you do when you fall into sin? I don't like the word fall. What do you do when you walk into sin? You begin to hide from God. You know, I'm no fool. I know why some of you that are not here don't come. I know if you miss a week or two, I understand what's going on. Something's going on with the kids. Something's going on with the grandparents. Something's going on with somebody. But when it's three and four and five, I know what's going on. Because the same thing would be going on with me. But how foolish is it that when we walk into sin, we walk away from God and we refuse to seek the only one who can help us. The one who has declared himself and proved himself to be the deliverer of all sin and yet we're hiding from the one who can deliver us from our sin. I know what happens when you don't come. And how crazy is this? I know what happens when you start having pro problems with your marriage. You don't come. Why in the world would you not come? Where are you going to find help? Who in the world are you going to turn to when you don't have a problem? Well, I know, but I'm just ashamed. And that's what we all do. We don't seek God because we walk into sin or find ourselves into sin and we start hiding. And here's a very frightening thing. And I think all of you people who teach or, or stand behind this pulpit with me would confess to this. Somehow we're still able to study and prepare a lesson or a passage while we're hiding from God. I've done it. Well, where do you see it? Oh, I see it in my personal prayer time, my personal devotion time. I was confessing for God, my devotion has been so weak as we walk through these passages. Because if we talked about sin, I've come to the better understanding of my own sin. And rather than running to God and confessing, I felt myself pulling away and hiding. How foolish is that? No one seeks after God. No one. Unfortunately, and I'll talk more about this next week, Unbeliever or believer, we pull away from Him every time we find ourselves in sin. And we all do it. But aren't you thankful that God is not like us because He does exactly the opposite? Let me read the passage to you again in Genesis 3. And this time, pay attention to what God is doing. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Let me remind you, after they had sinned, and as man was hiding, the Lord God called to man and he said to him, where are you? We have a God who seeks us. And I'm so thankful that we have a God who is nothing like me. Because I run from him in my sin and he comes after me in my sin. Do you remember the son of God who became a man, what he said? For the son of man came to seek and to say that which was lost. I mean, what a great God we have. 
that we have a God who pursues us even though that we find ourselves running from Him. And back in this passage, Paul has kind of brought us to the middle, if you will, and this kind of framed out inclusio a little bit. No more negatives. He turns to a positive statement, even though the statement itself is negative. And he says this in Romans chapter 3, All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Now, hopefully that phrase, have turned aside, brings to mind another passage, very familiar passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verse 6, where Isaiah writes, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So we've turned from someone and we've turned to someone. We've turned from God. God says, every single one of you, all of you, have turned away from me. You've turned away from the way of God. You've turned away from the peace of God. You've turned away from the wisdom of God. And you've made your own way. Man, we've got to be careful what we say to our kids sometimes, don't we? Because we want them to move out and to go make their own way. And I'm like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't want my son making his own way. I don't want my girls making their own way. I don't want my kids living on their own logic or their own wisdom. I don't want them to do that. I don't want them to turn their own way. I want them to turn from their way and turn to God. But God says you've all done exactly the opposite. You've turned away from me and you've turned to yourselves. And then he says, at the end of that passage, all have turned aside and together they have become useless. This is an interesting phrase. This is the only time this word useless is used in the New Testament. But he's quoting Psalm 14. That's why I wanted you to mark that. So the last place we'll go to, run with me to Psalm 14. And I want to show you this. Psalm 14, look at verse 3. The Hebrew word is translated differently in the English. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. One word is filthy. We've all become filthy. And it's in the moral context, so he's speaking that all of us from a moral standpoint are absolutely corrupt before God. And what's interesting is one of the Hebrew lexicons quotes a phrase that's outside of the Old Testament usage during that time. And this word was translated soured milk. God says, you've all become like soured milk in my mouth. I, I know we've all done that. I did that to myself just a couple of weeks ago. Paige is already laughing. The kids were home a few weeks ago. And so, you know, they love chocolate milk. I'd bought some chocolate milk. Kids moved out, went off to college, and so the chocolate milk gets slid to the back. And so I'm rummaging through the refrigerator trying to find something. You know, I see that chocolate milk, and I'm like, oh, wow. And I reach in the back, and this is what men do. Rather than looking at the lid, I said, hey, Paige, is this milk still good? She said, I guess so. Turned it up and killed it. About the time it hit my stomach, I realized this milk ain't good. It was so sour. I started gagging. There was no telling how sour that milk was. Nasty. And while that's funny, God says, that's what you are to me. You're just like soured milk. I just got a mouthful of it. And you just sour my stomach in your sin. 
And we think, Lord, surely not all of us sour your stomach. And he's like, oh, yeah. Every single one of you have soured my stomach in your sin. Now, I wanted you to turn to uh, 14. Because if you'll notice right after that verse, you find much of what Paul has quoted here. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's, there's no one who does good, not even one. But I want you to back up to verse 2 because I can't pass this passage up without making you see this. Look at verse 2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see. To see. And this is why I bring this up, because I've been taught this much of my life. The Lord looked down from heaven before time to see if anyone would receive or believe His gospel. And if He saw one who would believe His gospel, then they were preached the gospel. No matter where they were, God looked down from heaven to see if they would believe. This is what God saw. And it was not belief. In fact, if you look at the very... End of that passage, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if any understand, any who seek after God and know they've all turned aside. Together they've become like soured milk. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. That's what he saw. And that's why you're saved by him and not yourself. Now run back with me to Romans 3 and let's finish this up this morning. I appreciate your patience. But I do need to paint the rest of this picture. Romans chapter 3. Let's start in verse 13. And we'll move through the rest of this really quickly. There's just a couple of principles that you need to, to figure out here. Notice verse 13. We've got three references to the mouth. Romans 3.13, their throat, their tongues, their lips. 14 again, the mouth. 15, the feet. 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Or the throat, the tongues, the lips, the mouth, the feet, the eyes. This is a picture of total depravity. In Cranfield, one of my favorite commentators write, not only does it reach every single man, but it takes hold of every part of that man. There is no part of you that's free from sin. There is no part of you that is not depraved. Every single part of you is depraved and sinful and separated from God. Now you can't help but notice though the emphasis that's placed on the mouth. And here's the reason that I think Paul did that. Because the mouth gives testimony to what is in the heart. In other words, Paul could say, man is depraved, just listen to him. And it's so easier to listen to other people, right? And shake our heads. Can't believe they're saying that. You know, but we never get to listen to ourselves. But can you imagine if somebody just conveniently recorded us on their phone all day and said, hey, I just thought you might be interested to listen to some of the things you said today and walk and leave you out of the room. And you'd be like, oh, my goodness, I understand my own depravity. And what if they could record what happens before that filter? Because y'all know as well as I do how many things come to mind that you consider saying but you decide because you've got some filter there, I probably shouldn't say that. But the fact of the matter remains, it still came to your mind and your heart to say. And so Paul says, man's depraved, just, just listen to him. And then in verse 17, notice with me, the path of peace they have not known. They've never known it. 
Not only have they turned away from God, they've never known the way to God. That's why David prays in Psalms 25, Lord, make me know your ways, teach me your paths. Because David knows if I don't request of the Lord for him to make known to me his way, I'll grope about in darkness and I'll never find the way. Because we have simply, in our sin, not discovered the way to God. And then lastly, verse 18. This is one of the most fearful. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Isn't that fascinating? How many men would say, I fear God? And God would say, no, you don't. <laughs> you think you do, but you don't. In fact, Paul has already said in Romans 2, he asked the question, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But the reality is, lost men don't simply think lightly. Lost men don't even think. They mistake the patience of the Lord for the lie that God is not going to respond to their wrongdoing. Here's something I know almost everybody will understand, if not everyone. Our children constantly test our boundaries waiting for a response from us. And you know as well as I do, the longer you wait to respond, the further that boundary goes out, getting further and farther away from you from the, from the point where you wanted the boundary to begin with. You thought patience would get them there. No, your patience keeps allowing them to run farther and farther out into disobedience. But you also need to understand that we do the very same thing. We test the boundaries of God. And because He seemingly never responds, we keep going further and further and further away from God, all the while leading ourselves to the wrath of God. It would really be convenient every time we said something that did not glorify God for Him to smack our mouth. My mama did that to me one time. I don't remember what I said. She popped me right on the mouth as a little boy. I guess I, I, I let it pass from my mind. I, I didn't want to do it again so bad. I can't even remember what it was. How convenient would it be if God did that for us? How convenient would it be for us to commit some moral sin and us immediately feel the response of God? But because we don't feel the response, we shrug our shoulders and we keep right on going. Thinking, I guess He's not going to do anything. I guess I can keep going this way. And that's why God says, you know, there's never been a one of you who has ever feared me. Another way of looking at this that might be a little more practical for us is the fear of God can be akin to the acknowledgement of God in every area of life. So let me ask you this. Are you able to rise from bed in the morning, eat a bite of breakfast, get cleaned up, clothes on, go off to work, and never pause to acknowledge God in your day? Can you literally start a day and never acknowledge God who has given you that day? You see, we don't fear God. We fail to acknowledge God in every area of our lives. We can scarcely come to church to worship Him. I don't think it's right for us to stand with our chest poked out and say, oh, we live in the fear of God. No, we don't. If we did, we would act very differently. Now, I trust you in Romans 3. 
And so we have to ask this question, as hard as these passages are, is this Paul's conclusion about us? I mean, he did write these words. And there is a whole society of people who call themselves the red-letter Christians who don't accept necessarily Paul's words. So, I don't like that guy Paul. He's always hard. Well, then you have to remember that Paul's quoting King David. Are you okay with King David saying these things about you? I mean, he, he's the king of Israel. You go, well, I, uh, whatever. I still don't accept them wholeheartedly. Well, then you can't forget that Paul's also quoted, in my mind, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah. Isaiah said these things. Are you going to run against the words of Isaiah and go, you know, I don't really believe Isaiah. Well, that's why I read verse 10, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to you, the way that I did. The way that I did because Paul begins this whole argument with these words, as it stands written. And again, I read it like that because it's in the perfect tense in the Greek. God says, I wrote it down forever and you're not going to change it. There's not one of you who will ever change it. It's an eternal truth. And this is who we all are apart from Christ. It's the reality. And if you can understand this as the reality of who you are, then you can begin to understand how desperately we all need the grace of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, don't you dare sit there if light is beginning to come into your eyes. You've been groping about in darkness and now you're beginning to connect some dots and some lights come into your eyes. Don't you dare just sit there. If you're beginning to feel strength in your legs, you never once turned to Christ or walked to Christ or even run to Christ. You've never done that. But all of a sudden now, you're beginning to feel some strength come into your legs and a little bit of a desire to get up out of yourself and run to your Savior. Don't you dare turn away from those things. If your ears have always been deaf and you've never heard the sweetness, and all of us who have been converted remember the sweet voice of God when He called our name. Never heard it before, but I knew it when I heard it. If you're beginning to hear that sweet sound in your ears, don't you dare turn that off. But you call out to Christ and say, Oh God, I need more light. I need more strength in my legs that I might run to You. And I need more of Your pleasant sound in my ears that I might hear You. And please, oh God, give my cold, dead heart faith to believe. You're in a terrible place. You're in a terrible condition. But don't forget, God seeks after those who are in a terrible condition. And He wants to save. Take what you have, beg for more, and then trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.